to the Butter Chicken Podcast, hosted by DJ Sharad and DJ Juicy. Ooh. We focus on the stories of individuals who are making great impact in society and culture. The Butter Chicken Experience is well-cooked, thought-provoking conversation. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy the vibes. You got the culture? Yes, yes, yes. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back. Another episode of the Butter Chicken Podcast. It's your boy, DJ Sherrod and DJ Juicy. Juicy, what up? Butter Chicken Boys back at it again, my friend. Yet another episode, my brother. You got to wear your red sweatshirt memo? I did, man. And the sneakers, too. But Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's, it's like always by coincidence that it just happens to be that way between you and I, right? It's a little scary, actually. Great minds think alike. They really do. So... It's been a a busy couple of weeks. We've done a lot of stuff in the last few weeks, you know, between uh, opening up uh, the Holy Launch for Pharrell and then Champs Times Square, Adidas, uh, UDC just passed. That was crazy. And there's just been so much movement for our, our company and for our, our community as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about that? I think it's greatness, man. It's it's uh, what we're, we're coining this term and this hashtag, brown excellence, just striving to do great things with and aligning ourselves with great people, man. So it's it's been exciting, and it's been a lot of hard work, too. I feel like it wasn't always like that, and, and there was times where, like, you couldn't, like, you were proud to be brown, but you you maybe couldn't, like, call it out like that or boast it so much because we were in a society that, Brown wasn't really looked at as cool from the outside world, right? Like it was a black and white world, and then there's this In brown between. guys that <laughs> don't know what the fuck they are. Right? Did you ever feel like that? Absolutely, man. Finding my identity as a a young kid in uh, in a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, talking specifically like middle school and, and high school when I was coming to of age to understand these type of higher things. Um, was very difficult to figure out where I was in society. So it was it was definitely a struggle. I think one thing that kind of took me out of that and took me away from just sort of not feeling uh, any pressure to be one type of way was music. M- when I got into music and when I started listening to music and then tying all music together, it kind of made me feel just more proud of who I am and just be okay and comfortable in my own skin. I agree, man. It just, it was that, that one outlet that you could tell there was no judgment and you just could like, just be free and express yourself, whether that's through dance, that's through just bobbing your head. It was, it was a magical moment of, uh, of kind of being at peace with yourself. And those magical moments happen every time I listen to a new record. Even to this day, if I get some not from an artist, I'll play it. I'll be like, wow, I could be having the worst day of my life. I could be having just a hectic day, stressful time. I could zone the world out, turn on some music, and I'm good. Absolutely, man. I feel that way. Music really is the uh, the universal language, uh, whether it's whatever uh, genre you're listening to that kind of affects people that way. So, yep. And I think it also comes about uh, comes from where we're from, right? Like mm-hmm. We both come from Queens, and then we both moved out of Queens, but for us, Queens has always been a place of just musical greatness. Absolutely. And, and I think it's, it's a part of that is not because only of, of the artists that were coming out of Queens, but it was what everyone was listening to, um, you know, from 
all over, whether it was world world music or desi music or it was hip hop. It could it be hot. found in Queens. It could be found in Queens because it was just that diverse. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think I, I forgot what show I watched, but it was saying how like Queens is the absolute number one most diverse county in the entire country. And I, I, I read that too somewhere. I, I saw it in a TV show and it was, it was a food show, but it was... Oh, it was, was it the Anthony Bourdain you episode fuck, you're Queens? not here yet. You are not here yet. <laughs> the Queens. one that I guest starred on, the <laughs> Anthony Bourdain Queens episode. <laughs> Guys, I just <laughs> fucked up our whole podcast, man. So, uh, well, anyway, Heems is in the motherfucking building right now. Ladies and gentlemen... <laughs> Rapper, <laughs> activist. I don't even want to call him rapper. Food enthusiast, Himanchu, right. my right. brother. Yo, was it Anthony Bourdain, Queens? It was, it but was. I was leading up to something, bro. <laughs> I was. Right. Lead- I didn't realize that was going on. You I mean, you're not even back? supposed. To, no, we're not running shit back because you know that was so authentic and it, it was, was so it real. Was. We got to keep that. Man. Did you intentionally catch- fuck that up? Like, did you know you're not supposed to be talking until we introduce you? Well, you know, I'm a disruptor. I'm really into Silicon <laughs> Valley and tech, and like, you know, I like to disrupt. You know what I'm saying? Oh shit, man. Yeah. So we were gonna get into all of that, but but really, where I was getting is that. Juicy and I come from originally from Queens, like so many South Asians, uh, so many people within our community. And then as our families and parents sort of started uh, getting it and getting more paper, uh, they wanted to live better, build better lives for us. And eventually a lot of us left Queens, but our minds and our hearts really never left left Queens. And when I think about Queens music specifically, I'll think about Nas, Magdeep, LL, Nori. Words. Run DMZ. I mean, you Word. name it, right? This, this goes on. But the thing is, is that how I like we've known you forever, and we're gonna dive into that of how long we've really known you before music. Oh man! But when we think of people from our community that made impact musically, and then now culturally, mm-hmm. would you say that when you think of someone from Queens that did it, Heems is Without, Top of the line, without a doubt, man. This guy's done great things, dude. And you know, it's it's surreal when people uh, when when I hear people conversate about Heems and his music and things that he's done, and I'm like, I, I know Heems. Like we grew up together. Like it's so crazy. Just you know, hearing these things about people that you know, uh, you know, from other people's mouths and, and from their perspective, and it just kind of uh, it makes you feel like a sense of of happiness. Uh, some pride and, and joy, man. So, you know, uh, I want to say thank you so much for coming today. I want you. Uh, not too many people call you that, but I will call you that. I want you to call me that. Yeah, we want you. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that this is going to be a great uh, episode for us to really go into multiple things, but uh, to hear your story, you know, because there was just from my perspective, like we, we grew up together and there were some years that we weren't really in communication, but you were doing all these great things and we would always randomly run into each other. And I know we, we had a conversation the other day about how no matter wherever we left off, we would yeah. always pick right back up. So, yeah. yeah, man, thank you so much for coming today and joining us today. And I know, Sherrod, and you even have a history, so... My history's a little different, right? Because I know Himanshu as a couple years younger than me. Right. Right, a few years younger than me. And with that, in my age group, we were, like, a little older than you, you guys, I think. So I knew Himanshu through his sister shivani Mm -hmm. and shivani and us like that's at one time when we were all 15 16 years old it was a crew of like 50 of us probably like 12 girls and like 38 guys (laughs) sounds about typical indian Indian party (laughs) and so we knew shivani shivani was just uh, one of the around the way girls that we just knew 
um, 250-something street, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah, 1. 251. 251, right. Yeah, so, and then my, my, my dad's brother lived on 250th, so my cha-cha lived right behind me. We used to jump the fence to hang out together. Uh, so 250, 251st, and 252nd, my dad's cousin and their kids lived on. So That's crazy. Yeah. Whole, so the, so I, I didn't know him as as, like, anything else but, oh, that's Shivani's little brother. Right. And then we'll dive into it. But when his career hit and the first time I heard of him musically was with That's Racist, it just, I was that like, was oh, like, oh, shit, that's Shivani's little that's Shivani. brother. Oh, I know him. I yeah. fuck, and now it's like, people, you know Eames? I'm like, I know his sister B. Yeah. I don't know Eames. I know his sister B. So Word. I really know, you know, the lineage, if of you course, will. Of so, course. So we'll get into all that. But, man, I know you guys uh, kind of share that Floral Park, Belrose area bond. Yes, sir. Uh, and now today, you are senior editor, Indian culture at Spotify. Is that is that the correct? That's accurate. I want to change the title to South Asian culture to be inclusive of Pakistani and Bangladeshi, Nepali, Sri Lankan, and Afghani people. But right, I'm a I'm a, I'm a senior editor of Desi Music. Hold on. Gotta clap. Gotta clap to that. That's that's mega. I got I got a flex bomb this shit. You got the Kowali clap and the flex bomb. <laughs> we're staying true to the culture, you know what I'm Y'all saying? Y'all need a vah, 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 vah type of... Uh, hi, hi, maybe hi, we'll hi. record We'll do that later. We'll, yeah. we'll put it into our into our um, sample bin. <laughs> um, but yeah, Juicy, take it, man, and, and let's let's dive into this and get so, this content, man. I, I don't want to take too many tangents, but let's start right from... Himachu, tell us where you come from, your upbringing, um, and, and let's, let's dive into that a little bit, and then I'll, we'll ask some questions along the way and, and really get to understand, you know, what it was like. So I'll, I'll fill you up to speed before music. Um, so, yeah, I grew up listening to rap, reggae. Like, um, I used to idolize uh, people like you, Shivani, and the parties y'all used to go to at Soka Paradise. I uh, grew up in, like, <laughs> you know, I grew up in Queens, and this mix of Latino music, Dembo, of uh, dancehall, of R&B, of rap, those mixtapes that were put out by DJs, in the, in, when, in the 90s, I guess, um, really influenced my taste of music and the work I would do later to this day. Um, I went to high school at Stuyvesant, and that was when I was around kids that were into rap, uh, like me, who weren't DC, but they were into rap. And we were into Big L, Smoking Blunts, North Face Jackets, Air Force Ones, Baggy Jeans. And um, when I got to college, I was studying economics like a good Indian kid, but I was around kids that had studios, uh, to record rap. And Why did they have studios? Like, who was Because rapping? I went to a really privileged college of 2,800 kids in Connecticut. Okay. Um, and a lot of kids from New York, a lot of kids from the Bay, a lot of kids from Boston. But how do you end up there being like this, this middle-class kid from Queens? Like, I went to Stuyvesant. Uh, right. I was a math and science school. I was the vice president of Stuyvesant High School. I was a sociable kid. 9-11 happened. I was three blocks away. And immediately I saw the nature of people looking at our community shift. And one of the first public speaking opportunities I had was that our school was used as an emergency triage center, so we had to go to Brooklyn Tech for a month. The Brooklyn Tech kids were angry at us because they had to come into school from 7 to 1. We had to go to school from 1 to 6. We used to catch beef with them every time at the Crown Fried Chicken because <laughs> they had to wake up earlier to come to school. So it was a group of nerdy Stuyvesant kids versus a group? 
of nerdy Brooklyn Tech kids? I wouldn't say Brooklyn Tech. I would say their 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 makeup was a little bit more diverse than Stuyvesant and even Bronx Science was. Um, and I, that's a longer conversation about how the specialized science high schools and those types of performance tests neglect Latino and African Americans in New York City. But for whatever reason, we used to, we had to go to Brooklyn Tech for a month. And I gave one of my first public speeches, which would later become a part of my job, was to talk about not beating up your Muslim like student mates because of 9-11. And that really shifted like my perspective on my experience and the music that I would make later on in my life. Wow, so it stems back to high school days. It stems straight back to 9-11 and like a mix of growing up around you and Shivani and you know, going to India Day Parade and catching beef with kids and a mix <laughs> of c- catching beef with 40-year-old construction workers mm-hmm. from Manhattan yelling at us as we're fleeing the burning 9-11 towers saying, go back where you came from to a girl in a hijab and us being 15 and having to beef with 40-year-old adults. Crazy. So my, that's why my mix is a little bit more of like where we came from and normal rap tropes and a bit of our experiences since then as a minority in America, which shifted post 9-11. So was that speech, that first public speaking opportunity, you had something that was like voluntary that you wanted to do, or was that your uh, expectation as a vice president of the student body there? It was a mix of both, and okay. I was friends with about 30 other Desi kids, Guyanese, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Indian, mm. and we had a little group chat type of situation where I asked all of them about their opinions. We were trading stories we heard. And we were talking about what we wanted. I ran the whole speech by them. Mm-hmm. I asked my Muslim friends how they felt as a Hindu or a Sikh that, you know, I want their representation sure. to be heard. And then I made that speech. And then it wasn't like this moment. It was only like 10 years later I realized, wow, I've been doing this for a minute. Right. But it was a pivotal moment, 100%. When you say doing order. this, meaning what? Educating others and kind uh, of... Just talking about like uh, Islamophobia as a Hindu uh, Sikh Punjabi or Hindu Punjabi um, like to uh, that wasn't you know when I started doing that in my music again 10 years later when I was exploring like 9-11 and what that did to me and what that PTSD was was when I realized that I've been talking about this for a long time mm-hmm. it might have not rhymed before but it wasn't the first time on like on wax wasn't the first time I talked about this shit got it you say PTSD <clears throat> Was you you felt PTSD immediately after nine eleven? No, not immediately. Once like a white person told me what that means, I, f- I was like, oh, I feel like that. We don't have access to mental health resources, let alone the vocabulary of mental health. Right. Not till later in life until you figure out like, oh, I felt like if that. that. Yeah. Or you just educate yourself, or no, or surround yourself with other people outside of our community, if you will. I suppose outside of our community, yeah, yeah. Mm. Like, how many times do you sit down with your friends and talk about like, hey, like, what's your mental health like? Are you in therapy? Like, are you on antidepressants? Like, are you bipolar? Like, how many times have you thought maybe your parents were depressed, but like the idea of approaching them about medication for, for for anxiety or depression or bipolar depression was like, how do I fucking talk to my mom about that? let alone how may have their depression affected mine. I think there's two two things that kind of affect that. <clears throat> One is the lack of education, which you said. The second, like, meaning, like, with whoever's teaching us until someone later in life tells you, right? This, well, education's different. It's that our community's idea of education is very vocational. Versus of course. Like, yeah. yeah. And then the second part is, is that specifically when it comes to our culture and our parents is that I feel that there's a stigma and a taboo with that. Like... 
anything mental health related in in the desi culture is oh don't talk about that oh your aunt, your aunt is dealing with this okay like just talk about it at home like lo kya kahenge right course, that yeah. means what are people going to say um so i think that is why uh, just to answer your question like how many times have you to- spoke openly spoke about it with your friends and it's not often uh, and there's multiple reasons for them those are the, the two primary I ones i think that's the main reason yeah. i think that's the main reason is lo kya kahenge yeah yeah for Shout sure that's hasan um but uh but yeah and uh like actually even like recently i feel like sharad cuz sharad and i we we run a business together but before that uh we're friends and we're brothers and he i actually consider him to be one of my my best friends and, and a mentor to me so sweet <laughs> but hey 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 so nice but uh but like only as of late like if i'm going through something personal will i really be like yo sharad this is what i'm going through and he'll tell me like how i should well he'll ask ask me thought provoking questions to really get it out of me fully and then kind of help me and say yo maybe you should try to approach it this way and that way but but using the terms the bipolar the depression and those type of words aren't loosely thrown around you know what i'm saying and i don't want to come out here in front like i'm some expert on these things no, I'm, no. i'm figuring them out like every day and i need a lot more to figure them out better so, you know but for sure. but i do think it's important for us as a community to kind of open this dialogue about this shit because for we real. don't talk about it and we're outcasted if we do talk about it and I think there's a lot in our culture that gets swept under the rug and I feel like for us to be vocal South Asians it's about exposing what's swept under the rug mm-hmm. so it's not no longer swept under the rug because it begins to like linger in the air like a black cloud when it's swept under the rug and how do you like breathe in an environment like that you can't and then something drastic happens like somebody dies or they kill themselves and i mean i've been around people like that and we've all kind of yeah. experienced that in our community absolutely and we don't we talk go, about we it. go through that every day now and we're a little bit more uh educated we've educated ourselves and we're a little bit more aware than maybe the generation above us of course mm-hmm. yeah and awareness is in anything is crucial right so once you've you've been made aware of it and you choose not to do something about it then you're just playing into doing the same things that your parents did or people from an older generation did so you know i don't even want to reduce it to like a generational conversation i think like a lot of people i met that are older than me if they came up with that guap in india or in new york or in london then they are aware of these types of like resources or these types of issues so it's not so much generational it's just a matter of like access to those resources which often come with wealth like mm. um but and i know people i feel like the generation i don't want even want to call it a generation like the the people i know 5 to 10 years younger than me have such a better vocabulary and understanding of mental health substance abuse misogyny like you know of of a lot of the qualms of our community like why, why do you think that is that these kids 5 7 8 10 years i, w- I guess it is a matter of education but it's also a matter of class and like that you know we we have or they have more access to it we have more access to it and we can't ignore the role that class or access to mental health access to vocabulary mm-hmm. like a lot you know and i don't i used to be at a point where i used to be like oh they only know this shit that i don't know about cuz they're rich but it's not about you know it i guess what i'm basically saying is i still feel like that but i've <laughs> uh, found ways to like explain it in better terms yeah. but but i don't want to reduce it to older they see people like our experiences as immigrants first generation all depends on a couple of different issues i don't want to get into man diva <laughs> if you came between 65 and 75 90% of the people that came during those years had phd's or masters 
1965, they passed the Asian American like Immigration Act, where they started. Ex- oh no, so 65, they passed the Immigration uh, Asian Act, and they basically were at war, Cold War with Russia, and they wanted to up their science programs, so they invited more Chinese Indian people to America. 75, they passed the Family Reunification Act, which meant that your uneducated family members can come. Uh, what that means is there's a lot of really educated Desi people in America. And then after that, there were a lot of less educated Hence people. Hence Edison, New Jersey. That's exactly how Edison was built, if, if you know the... I mean, it seems like you know it, but that's exactly how Edison was made. What year did your parents come here? Uh, 79, my dad came and then had an arranged marriage with my mom and came in 81. Oh, no, 80. Your, 80. your mom and dad are both from India? Yeah. So What do you mean? No, like, like <laughs> my mom's not. Oh. My mom's Indian, but she's from Kenya, so... Oh, really? He, I didn't I, know that. Yeah. Now you do? Okay. Yeah. And there's a lot. There's a lot of Indians from Kenya. Of course, of course. London, Singapore, all these places. So my mom was born in Kenya. Uganda until we got kicked out. Uganda and Kenya at the same time. Idi Amin, right? Um, So what what year did your parents come in? My dad came to New York in like 70, no, to Boston in 73. Mm. And then... Did your dad have a PhD or a master's? Absolutely not. My dad came with $8 in his pocket. Uh, he came in a time when a lot of people from my Cindy community were um, were doing the garment business. So simple operation, factory in India, set up a retail, uh, a wholesale showroom here, go send a sales team out and try to get people to buy your shit that was coming from India. If it cost you $3, you would sell it for 6 And a lot of people from my community opened up shop in 1407 Broadway, 1385 Broadway, those were like the garment centers that were controlled by the Jewish people. Cindy sort of followed that route, and my dad was one of those guys, and eventually would almost become a millionaire when all his friends did, except he's the one that didn't make it, and he lost his business, and that was that. But uh, Garments, motels, uh, rug trading. Um, Retail, 7-Elevens. Uh, that's later, though, right? That's yeah, later. yeah. So my dad, when he lost his garment business, ended up opening a deli on nearby Canal Street for his first deli costed him 15 grand to open up in like 82, 83. Wow. Ran that for a minute, afforded us a house in Long Island, and then um, got out of the deli and went into Hallmark. And that's when we made it. Like, yo, we made it, fam. We got a Hallmark. And I was like We need a candy store on Queens Boulevard. You guys have one too? We had one, but you know... My dad kept on playing the video games, and kids would just steal shit, and then our margins wasn't right, and then my <laughs> mom was like, nah. Let's go out. into that. So your parents are are here mid-70s, and... 79, 80. Late yeah. 70s, early Okay, 80s. and then your sister's born first, and you're born, and then you guys just have this this struggle to go through to kind of get to the point where you end up getting doing really well in high school and college, right? But was was... All that time good, or was there up and downs for you guys back then? Like financially? Financially, living, lifestyle, you know, from Flushing to Belrose, that era. Well, I'll say when we started in Belrose, there were about like 12 at least of us in one apartment, in like a three-bedroom apartment. Yeah. Um, And then when we got to Glen Oaks, we had a little bit more space for us, which was great. Um, Uncle had a liquor store. We had a, a candy store on Queens Boulevard. That didn't work out. A couple filled. My dad drove a cab for a while. That didn't work out. Why didn't that work out? I don't know. 
I think he was actually just, I don't like the way my dad drives, so I would, <laughs> I would assume he was just bad at that. Um, actually, I don't want to get into this. I, I would assume my dad was bad at most of the jobs he had, and then my mom had to handle the shit. And um, so after those two, like, my mom was working at Pathmark. Then she started working at Merrill Lynch as a bookkeeper. She was killing it. But very fitting for, uh, you know, for who I am. She used to have claustrophobia on the trains to go to Manhattan for Merrill Lynch. So she then started, uh, well, actually, when she first came to America, she was making belts in a Punjabi dude's apartment in Flushing. Wow. Like uh, like uh, those stretchy belts with a little buckle on them. Yeah, yeah. I love those belts. And um, he, he lent us money so we could move to Glen Oaks from Flushing. And um, I forget the uncle's name, but he was very, like, pivotal in my family, like, getting their space from this 12-bedroom apartment. And um, so then my mom ended up, she was working at Pathmark, Merrill Lynch, making belts. Then she ended up selling life insurance. And she's a saleswoman. My mom is a hustler. My dad ended up having, like, a job in the city uh, and insurance claims at different hospitals, Coney Island Hospital, uh, the hospital on on uh, Roosevelt Island uh, Metropolitan Hospital. Uh, he's retired now. What, um, where do you place, like, in your success and in your ladder to success and growth as a human individual, where do you place your parents' hustle in your, yeah, in your so story? Yeah, so there's two parts of my story, right? So my dad actually collected Bollywood cassettes to the point where my mom would, like, Love hate them. him. And <laughs> I literally, so I did an installation at Icon Gallery on Great Jones Street where... It was all basketball cards, a RBC radio, and Bollywood cassettes. Wow. That was that, just that your ex- childhood. That's, that's your childhood. childhood. Yeah, RBC and family radio. photos of Shivani and me. Wow. <laughs> and, when was um, this? This was January, I want to say 2017 or maybe 2016. No, 2016 I was in Goa. January 2017. Dope. Um, so my dad still to this day have this collection of mad Bollywood cassettes. And my mom was always the businesswoman, the saleswoman, the hustler. And, like, the, I got to take care of this family. My husband is, like, a artist who can't handle business like he should. And I am, like, a strong Punjabi woman. And so my mom really taught me. My mom is the reason I didn't just make rap, but I managed my groups. I got distribution deals. I, I, I took care of the label. I managed other artists. That business also came from my mom. But that sheer appreciation of music came from those Bollywood cassettes. And a lot of maybe the conflict within me comes from the conflict within them, where my mom's was like, why are you spending like a stack a month on Bollywood cassettes when we're barely surviving? And my dad was like, I don't like music. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of took him away. I think that explains a lot of like why I wasn't just a rapper, why I ended up at like a, a tech company doing music now. I finally like found my path back to combining those two Amazing. things, and then even in my music, it was always about managing DIY everything. Like I came from like the punk indie world, but a lot of that comes from my mom's hustle. That I'm not going to let no white person take twenty percent off my cut, but, like when I was just coming from Wall Street. Or, why well, I got to be about white? It usually is in this country. <laughs> so you said I want to own it all if I do it, or when I do it, and you did it. I just said, like, I don't want to own just 75%. So, 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 <laughs> you got to pay your lawyer and your business manager, too. So by the right. time of that, it comes down to 75%. Right. So, 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 so talk to about, so, so they kind of helped you get this hustle and 
get to this point of like being self-sufficient and then you go through college, you hit these studios and you finally start making music. When do you, when do you say like, yo, I'm going to make this music that's going to touch the world? Well, at what point does that start? Never. Never. No, you just make the music. You hope it resonates. When it does resonate, you wonder why it resonates. And then you try not to, you know, like pick yourself apart of why it resonates. But I, for, for my personal experience, I never had that attitude of like, I'm the best. Or I still, to this day, the reason I work at like now a company is because I don't feel like I ever deserved that stage. I just did it. But I never, I didn't have that. So necessary confidence of like rap music like the intent was just to put the content out and then whatever happened happened there was no intent i got f- fired from my job on wall street or like we left on amicable terms that was the company run by two daisies two daisies okay we changed their names okay to mike and bob because in 92 daisies weren't on wall street like they were mm-hmm. now we can count your top daisie executives as their clients but after that, like, I left that company. That night, I played a CMJ show. The next day, I was in the New York Times for the CMJ show. When you say you played the CMJ show, how did you get, like, how did you just show up? Like, you didn't just show up. No, you had I a record my, my, I, I sold Pizza Hut Taco Bell. <laughs> yes, I need to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, so we'll get to All right, cool. <laughs> we're, we're there. All right. Uh, that's how I reheard of you, again, as not, as not Shivani's little brother. Like, so there was this whole thing of high school, Shivani's little brother, cool. Just a little kid on the block, and then all of a sudden, I'm on YouTube or whatever, and it's Pizza Taco Bell has like millions of views. Mm-hmm. I'm like, do I know this kid? H- how and why? Like, that I, set it off. I, I was that was surreal for me when I said, I was like, holy, oh, come on, shoot, where this is crazy. That, does that, does that set it off for Das Racist, yeah, Greedhead, and all that extra stuff that comes after that? Yeah, explain. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm, so there was a, uh, I started working with Victor uh, Vasquez, um, who would later be my bandmate in That's Racist, and he had a song where he had the words, I'm at the Pizza Hut, I'm at the Taco Bell, I'm at the combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell, <laughs> and at that point, like, being more of an A&R and a business person who fancied themselves a business person who worked on Wall Street, like, who happened to be good at rapping, but who could never accept that, yo, you're a good rapper, because... Indian kids that grow up in Queens don't become rappers, so you should go to Wall Street and be a doctor. That right? was you. Spe- that was like your 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 that conscious was, speaking. That to still yourself. is to this day. Wow, to this day. Yeah, I can't shake that. Um, so when I heard Vic say that, I said, "Yo, we should make this its own song." And then one day, we oh, went, that was a line in another record. That was a line on his record. Okay. And then when we started working together, I was like, "I think this has a potential to be its own song if we repeat it fifty times on a song." <laughs> Because I was thinking, like, from a marketing perspective, Pizza Hut and Taco Bell have put in millions of dollars into their branding. Like, if we repeat this, repetition works as a poetic device. Like, if you repeat it, it goes from a silly song for Z100 to a tone poem for, like, Marxists who believe that capitalism is folding upon itself. So I thought that this is what would build the model for my music later, which was two layers. Let the people that don't understand you think it's some funny shit... And let the fucking nerds understand that this is political statement. Mm. And that, that, that's kind of the, the, the way that I built my career. Pizza Hut, Taco Bell. Combination Pizza Hut, Taco Bell. FedEx, Kinko's. Combination FedEx, Kinko's. <laughs> it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the combination best of times and worst of times. Charles Dickens. Wow.
mind blown. Take a breath real quick. So you have that record, but your game plan is already built or no? No, I'm working on Wall Street hiring emerging markets and commodities traders for Goldman and Credit Suisse. As that record is just blowing I'm up I'm literally on the going to my managing director's desk and cutting out pages with my face on them from his New York magazine sitting wow. on his desk. So he wouldn't see it. Yeah, and then my other boss turns around and is reading the Times and he goes... The New York Times just called you a stoner jokester. <laughs> <laughs> where were your bandmates? In, in, yeah, where time? did they do it? Yeah, where were they at? At this point, it was just Victor and me. He was in another band that got signed to Warner, and he was doing his like hipster thing. But I was like doing my Indian thing. What was his band? It was called Boy Crisis. And your band, Das Racist, was just the one. We were song? a side project for, for that band. For, right, you for mean, him. Yeah. It was just some side shit with you and him on some, yeah, on some side just, shit. If, if like a lot of this was these kids at Wesleyan. Like when I saw MGMT doing what where's doing, where's Victor from? The Bay. He's from the Bay. So how do you click up? Like how do Wesleyan. You, Wesleyan. Oh, so you meet at school? Was he one of the cats that had the studio in in the room or whatever? No, I think his situation was like more similar to mine. But but this but this record happened after school, right? Yeah. So you're in New York now. Won this record, yeah. hits, and he's in New York too. Yeah, so he comes to New York. And most of the kids at Wesleyan now were like creative. Ended up this is part of that. Now we're getting into like the Brooklyn Williamsburg scene mm. of like 2005 to 2000. Brooklyn like, starts popping. Twelve when not like Brooklyn been popping. No, we know like, that as rap heads. But right, like, right. But this is when the my little hipster half Hipsters. starts taking right, over. Right, right. right. Yeah. Gentrification. Yeah, starts going crazy. It's in Brooklyn. been started, but this is when. The music press starts paying attention to like Williamsburg yeah. and and resonates to people of our age group and stuff. So what is right. what does Williamsburg have to do with you, Victor, and Das Racist? We all lived out there, and okay. a lot of our friends that were in bands like MGMT, Yaysayer, Chairlift, Amazing Baby, these kinds of like bands that we went to college with or we hung out with. Like this is when like I was hanging out regularly with like hippie white kids making amazing music who are like still to this day i went to see mgmt on monday yeah and i caught up with like you know my homies and like it, it felt like again like when i see you yeah. just like where you see your old friends and you just catch up and so a lot of my outlook on rap music was coming actually from like the indie rock world so very different than what what i know is brooklyn rap which is like Master A. I mean, I still camp. know what you know. You, you I just know, know some other shit too, right? The <laughs> like, point is, is you know, you know the different shit, but you also I know pre and post gentrification, like right. You know yeah. the real shit, Timberlands and, and and khakis and and backpacks. You know that very very well, yeah, because that's what you grew up with. But Wesleyan sort of exposed you, right, to different shit, cool shit, shit that. Now you're looking at these kids are looking at you like yo he's a cool ass cat. This is when I became like me versus the twelve year old version of me who you knew, like you know, still wearing the Cleveland Indians. Jerseys. So you're battling yourself at that point. I've always been, yeah. And we kind of we just don't see I'm battling Heems. myself today more than ever before. But yeah, Juice at that point, like I know Heems goes off, goes left mm -hmm. in terms of who he's hanging out with, what he does, and the space that he's in is so removed from what we're doing at the exact same time and worlds just separate right right 
but you're in this space where you're meeting all these new people, creating a business, and you build a record label off right. of the strength of Das Racist. Yeah. Or is it off of you? What is it? I don't know. I mean, Das Racist, I would say creatively, initially, was a lot more Victor, but structurally, it was a lot more me. Meaning building the business. Right. So, at this point, like, hmm, if you want to put out a mixtape, you got to pay Green Lantern 10 stacks. you got to pay Drama 15 stacks. So, what I did was I went to Mishka, a clothing brand in Brooklyn, and I was like, yo, uh, put your logo on my mixtape and put it in all of your bags. And so, we... Who paid for it? Mishka paid for pressing them. Okay, that's I paid dope. for recording it. Okay. And we were, according to Forbes, one of the first models of apparel mixtapes, which was after the DJ mix, like DJ mixtape model. Wait, yours was before the end one mixtape? Was that a rap album? That was rap mixtapes. Yeah. With mixtape. one artist? Multiple artists. Okay. What was the first uh, one artist mixtape where instead of going to Drama or Green Lantern, they went with a lab- uh, clothing brand? I'm gonna say that's racist. I would, I would like to. I mean, I hope, <laughs> I hope somebody at Forbes like fact checks it because that's what they said. Yeah. But right. So single artist clothing brand sponsored. Right. Like tape. throw this in your bag because y'all have like rap fans and skateboarders and y'all have right. like all these different markets that I, that I think rap is moving towards now. It's still it's there. It's been there, right. Right. It's yeah. it's everywhere. It yeah. wasn't like back then. You know, in a certain way, it like was. A, it was just different. Now it's like out in the open. But right? that, I think that was yeah. a transitional period at that time. Hundred percent. Yeah. Hundred percent. Right. Sure. That's where like skinny jean rap, or if like I would still get shitted on by old heads for like wearing skinny jeans. Mm. Then a couple of years later, I was dropping freestyles on Combat Jack, and me and Sean Price were homies. Like, and that wasn't the case like when I started out because most of, you know, a lot of uh, the people that had been more established in rap would look at kids like us and be like, you, "You're not hood. You went to a college like that. You're wearing jeans like this. Like, just because your sneakers are right doesn't mean that you're there." Are my sneakers okay? They're beautiful. <laughs> a little dirty. Though. Very, very interesting that you said you're you. Two people that both kind of left this earth a little too soon, Sean P. Not intentional, but yeah. And and Combat Jack and. Rest so Yams Beast. was also another one of the people that really gave me confidence in my career, and like. This is where it it gets a little blurry to me, and it will probably get blurry to a lot of people who don't know you and don't know your career path. But to me, it's like gets out of college, makes this fucking. Record starts a label, starts bubbling, and then all of a sudden, fast forward a few years, everywhere I turn as a senior DJ in in the scene period, and everywhere I go, and everyone I have a conversation with that's not Indian, but that knows about Indian or knows about South Asian or knows a little bit about the space that we're all in, says to me, "Do you know Heems?" And everywhere I'm going, it's like, "Yo, you know Heems? Yo, you know Heems? Yo, Heems is that dude? Yo, mm-hmm. Heems is that guy? Yo, I fucks with Heems. Yo, I fucks with that." Yeah. Like it just became this thing where super underground, but the people that needed to know knew Heems, and that's when I was like, "Wow, the generation under us has done surpassed what we did." And to me, that was like fucking amazing. It, that felt amazing to this day. Anywhere I go in New York, and we talk real rap shit, Heems pops up. Sense of pride, man. For real. Like, did you, do you know the impact for, like, the older guys like us that are, like, if you look at it, we're, like, you know, the, the Big Daddy Canes and the Eric B's, and you're, like, the, the generation. Be, be clear, the older guys, me and Heems are the same age. Just throw yeah, out. yeah, me, me. <laughs> me is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, yo, I can't, like, in the beginning, I'm like, wow. 
And then it's like it just becomes regular. Mm. Like where everywhere you turn, people know Heems. Does does that affect you in any way or does that does that take you well, down I any path? I definitely paths? try not to think about shit like that. Like I still have that like working class guilt of I shouldn't be an artist. So like I I don't I don't know. I feel glad that I could return the favor to you and like the the DJs in Queens that I looked up to, like that really I feel like brought me to the fact that they see people can do more than be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, cab driver, seven eleven worker, like both both sides of class. Like you know, I really was just carrying over what y'all started in the neighborhood. And like so I don't walk around like uh I'm this kind of man or something like that. To this day, like once a day somebody walks up to me and is like, yo, he's blah 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 and I'm like <laughs> like I made this music to get away from people, not to be in front of people. And I've never been the type of guy to be like, wait, Yo, wait, no. let me pause that. You made this music to get away from people, not be in front of people. Yeah. Isn't that sort of uh, the opposite of what happens when artists make great music? Not when you make the music, but w- what happens with the music after you make it and it gets into the engine. Mm. When you make music, it's your therapy. It's your time to get away from people. It's your time for you and your boys and, you know, your friends and your engineer to sit in the studio. And what are you going through? Like, your engineer is your therapist for a lot of communities where, like, we don't have therapists. I go to my man Linus, who after That's Racist started, he's uh, ASAP Rocky's go-to guy. I go to my man Patrick, who recorded um pizza hot taco bell and he just produced uh the mgmt record like and we were all homies all this time but for me that was the therapy and i think you can talk to a ton of indie rock artists like i just off the top of my head maybe he'll tell me i'm wrong but somebody like youth lagoon like you make this music in your room as a bedroom pop bedroom art like bedroom rap and because you need space from people and you have social anxiety and then all of a sudden your job is like Yo, we'll give you five stacks to get on stage. We'll give you ten stacks, fifteen stacks to get on stage. Right. And like, and then after. But stage, that wasn't the intent, is what you're no, saying. No, who the fuck? What? Like, I didn't grow up thinking that was my intent. I wanted to fucking make much more money than I'm making right now. Like, <laughs> I would have been a fucking banker or some shit like that. I would have been a doctor, bro. I would have been a pharmacist if, I, like I said on that song, I would have been a pharmacist if I knew that I wouldn't steal all the fucking Xanax. Like, <laughs> Interesting. True. Facts. So you you're getting all this money, or getting thrown this money after your records start blowing up and you build this label up and blowing that money, throwing it all away. Tell me about it. I think I shouldn't talk about that, but I was blowing a lot of money. Okay. So you're getting it, and it was in one door. When you start thinking that that money's there forever, and because there's no structure to that money, you don't have like a salary that you can go for a raise in two years. So you start thinking, oh, I'm making two, three hundred stacks. Like, this is my life now. And then you start building these kind of, like, habits of spending that, like, later on come to bite you in the ass when you're an underground artist making, like, uh, I would say, as a math guy, like, 5% of what you were making when you started, 10%, you know? So you, you go to the studio, you, you get escape from this world. And, and, and I'll tell you this, making those songs, I never spent more than one hour on a verse in my life. Interesting. I'm not that guy that goes to the studio and sits there. I'm that guy that 
I'm only in the studio rapping because I know I'm paying forty, fifty, sixty dollars for that hour. Yeah. And so I better get it done. Yeah. But I'm not sitting at home writing rhymes. I've never in my life sat at home and written a rhyme. So it's off the dome or is you writing it in the studio? I'm writing it off the dome, let's say. Okay. Like I'm writing it quickly and I'm throwing it out there, but it's not it never felt like to me this is like an occupation or a career or this is like a craft. Right. And like I, I one of the reasons I wanna do what I'm doing now is so I can have that distance to really appreciate it as a craft and go back to it. I bought my little MPC 2000 Excel. I want to learn how to make the beats. Like When you say what you're doing now, meaning taking it to Spotify and, and kind of... Let's cut, the, let's cut the, the corpo name out, but taking it to a 9 to 5. Yeah. Okay. Right, taking it to a job and kind of being able to do it that way Yeah. versus making the music, putting it out as an artist. Yeah, or just, like, I want my space and time to really work on my craft. Because, mm-hmm. like, before I never... I still was Indian, I, or, like, I still had this mentality that I grew up with where I'm the manager, I'm the label head, mm-hmm. I'm the PR person, I'm the marketing head, I'm the social media manager. You were all that, is what you yeah, said. Yeah, I was. But mm-hmm. the rapping came to me, in my narrative, sixth or seventh. Got it. And, but then when you... And, but you were... You, it was still great records. So many great records being... You say that, yeah. You don't feel that they were great? I feel like maybe five of them were good. And then the anxiety struck for you when you went to perform it, because that's not what you really wanted to do. Just this idea of if you don't grow up thinking you're going to be like an artist, and then all of a sudden you're an artist, it takes some time to adapt to the role of artist. Like, Yeah. It's, so it's, that's it's, why it's not was, just getting a mic on stage. It's There's a hundred other things. That come I think up. maybe a lot of other people grow up wanting to be artists, but I was just, I was wanting to be a business person, and so mm-hmm. I focused on that, and the art came second. And to this day, the arts always come second, and that's why I want to take a break mm-hmm. and really appreciate, like, what my talent is and really reappreciate my craft. It's like hit the reset button. And then reapproach it. I yeah. love what, what what you said with that because I feel... So connected. Have to you it. now? Now you guys tell me. Like, have you felt like this? Dude, like you run a you run a, a, a big business, man. You're fun, you're more fun. than a yeah. personality and a DJ and a talent. You run. I want to say a corporation. I run. I do run. And a, you uh, you are the capo. I yeah. run. Um, we run a multi million dollar DJ production event entertainment. I know. Agency, I'm only right? here so I get a discount if I ever get married. <laughs> no, nah, yours, yours is yours is on, on us. us. On us, man. But. If not, if when we will be there. But besides that, like I started. You to say if when. <laughs> I started as a DJ, and DJing was always first for me. And my my first love of the whole thing was music. I loved music, and I got into the DJing. And then from the DJing, I got more DJing and more DJing and more DJing. At some point, promoters started to jerk me and pay me fifty dollars when the club was getting ten thousand. So I, at a young age, like like two, three years into it, I was like, cool, I'm not going to DJ. I'm going to DJ and throw the party. And that way I could control who else is DJing with me. This is at 16, 17. So I've been on this grind for like 20 plus years, right? I want to control the whole show. And in doing so, I believe that because I've always ran the business, it became a point where... DJing became secondary. And for like a good four or five years, I stopped perfecting my craft. I stopped looking for music. I was like, fuck it. I got all these DJs that I'm I'm running a business with. Let me put everyone ahead of me. And for like five or six strong years, and this is leading to about 
2014. So from like 2008 to 2014, I put everyone ahead of me. And I said, I'm going to worry about this guy's schedule and that guy's booking and signing this guy and partnering with this big DJ and doing all this shit. And DJing to me was secondary. So if you know my history, I put out my last mixtape in 2007. I lived off of those mixtapes and whatever I did in the 90s from 2007 to 2017, 10-year run, pushing everybody. And in 2014, I said, I'm going to turn this shit around and I'm going to get back in the game and I'm going to start making music and making mixtapes again. And ever since I've done that, one major reason is because when we finally built the company and I started letting go of things like, hey, I can't be the production guy. I can't be the operations guy. I can't be the guy that wears every hat because my DJing is suffering and I'm beginning to hate this business. I'm beginning to hate it. It's a business now and there's no... We're a DJ company and I don't even fucking DJ. It doesn't even fucking make sense. Right. So I went back to it and, and part of that was delegating and when, when Juicy was working for me at the time in 2014, I now brought in a partner to do half of the shit that I had to do. So now there's half of us. So now half my time could be freed up to do shit like build a family. That's a big step, bringing on a partner and being it's like, a big I can st- trust this person. Yeah, it's like, a big step. It's a marriage. I'm glad it's juicy, too. Yeah. I am, too, because if it was anybody else, it would have been over. It can't been see that. Grand <laughs> opening, that. grand closing really fast. And, and Heem's like, you know, I've been in 11 LLCs. I've been in 11 mm. partnerships. I've had eight failing or companies that opened and at some point closed. DJ USA, our baby, me and Juice, this shit has been here since the beginning, right? Yeah. So it was a huge step, like letting this guy into this thing. But it allowed me to now be more creative and get back into the game and reconnect with artists that I was fucking with 10, 12 years ago. Honestly, when I saw you DJ at Adidas, that was like probably the first time I seen you DJ in like 10 years. And you know how much fun that was? Yo, I saw you with a little kid, man. Like... I saw you getting excited about, like, Anik, about my music. Like, it was amazing for me to see because it felt like everything came full circle for not just you or me or Juice, but, like, as a community. One like, thousand We're getting fucking percent. brand money. Oh, yeah. We're getting, like, label money. We're getting distribution deals. And nobody thought, like, the Indian, the, the cab driver or the doctor's kids would ever <laughs> end up being these people, right? Yeah, no, for sure. And, and, you know, one other thing I want to say is that that night at the date was, was cool because it it was... It was us and other people of color. It was all people of color. And it felt like normal and regular the way that we grew up in Queens, not like in this environment where like, uh, I don't know what to say. Like, I just felt like it was really proper because it felt like we brought what we grew up with to a larger scale around other people that if they never been to Queens or were not there in the 90s, they might be like, what is this? But, yeah. but for us, it just felt like this This is, you know, Guyanese, Indo, Indo-Caribbean, you know West felt, Indian. You know how Indian. good it felt to play Abje uh, Sakoi and Tu Chisbury He Mastamas in front of everybody. In front of label heads from like Rock and, and Def Jam and people from major labels and, and major they're vibing. And they're influencers vibing. in the scene and in culture and in fashion were like, yo, we fucks with this, cool. It's rocking. Like, yo, we, we, we embrace what you're doing. To me, that felt like. I think, you, and, and all wow. the, all our friends and family that were there, that it's, they're like, yo, this just feels right. And the, the biggest thing is like the artists we really believe in and people we know about. Like when we sent the text, yo, come through. I think, you know, you just rolled up. 
you know, people that are now on the bubble tip, like mm. people that are bubbling now that just are putting out records and just getting in the game. Very different than when I got in the game, when Juicy got in the game, when you got in the game. Now it's like, yo, we're already getting this bread money. We know a dude that's already structured a label. We already know about royalties. We already know about brand partnerships. Now you're here. Let's work. And with that, I think we need to just take a quick break. Yes, sir. And uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. Butter Chicken Podcast. This is DJ Sherrod. Makani. <laughs> DJ Juicy. Stay tuned, listeners. Hey, guys. This is Mega from Holy Chic by Mega. And I am listening to the Butter Chicken Podcast with DJ Sherrod and DJ Juicy. Yo, what's good, everybody? This is Jazz Dami. You're listening to Butter Chicken Podcast with DJ Sherrod and DJ Juicy. Hey, this is Heems. Shout out DJ Shiraz, shout out DJ Juicy. This is the Butter Chicken Podcast. Yo, this is Rackstar. You can catch me on the Butter Chicken Podcast with DJ Sherrod and DJ Juicy, and it gets super spicy. What up? It's your boy Sherrod, sneaker room all day. I'm here on the Butter Chicken Podcast. This is one of the craziest podcasts I've ever done. Listen to me, if you don't know what Butter Chicken is, you better Google that shit. If you don't know who my man DJ Sherrod is, you better Google that dude. If you don't know who my man DJ Juicy is, a.k.a. the Punjabi Fat Man Scoop, you better Google him. We here, man. Butter Chicken Podcast all day. Yo, can I get some Butter Chicken? Butter Chicken? Butter Chicken? Yes, yes, yes. New York City and worldwide, it's about that time. We are back from break. This is the Butter Chicken Podcast. It's your boy, DJ Sherrod and DJ Juicy. And we are the Butter Chicken Boys here at the Butter Chicken Podcast. Juicy, you feeling good? I'm feeling great, man. We got our brother Heems, Heems, Heems in the building. What up, Heems? What's up, guys? <laughs> we are about to... We're about to do something. I heard you about to spit some shit for us, some oh, fire yeah, I'll bars. I'll do some rap music that never came out. I'll do it right now. Okay, bet. I'm going to flip this beat real quick. Oh, shit. Hey. Okay. Yeah. I gotta read it. Get it. Yeah. I was copping quarter waters and bologna sandwiches. You wasn't born yet when I saw those buildings vanish, kid. I'm from around the world. I'm not sure what my accent is. I'm on a hammock. They can't fathom what my bandwidth is. Passionate activist who passionless on activists. Pacifist advocate who pacifists. That's adequate. I've been a savage since they used to call us savages. I roll with Arabs, bumping horse and carriage, standard shit. They see me, they get shit like mannequin. I'm what a mammoth is. I'm bright, I'm light like halogen. I'm like, I'm right, I fight all night. I fight, I like gigantic spliff. Hammering, tamarind, handling gatherings. I'm rapping like it's a mandolin. Shenanigans, Raymond and Flanagan. New York like a Madison. New York like Canal Street. Africans talk Mandarin. Spattering and battering. Words pitter-pattering until it's clattering. Ain't no matter shit. Keep me Herman on that gather shit. Uh, that, yeah. <laughs> How that felt? Crazy. Felt it right? Felt right? I haven't read that or thought about it in like mm, 37 days. So it was good to dig that up from the old Google. <laughs> so you just write shit up and put it in your phone? Is that how it goes? Things like that, yeah. Where, where, when, like, do you find there's a particular part of the day? that like you're more creative and you want to just go and ham writing like if i've committed to be in a studio then i'm like all right i'll do this thing that i committed to <laughs> okay but when you say you com- like, committed to be in a studio meaning like you'll just have you'll just rent a studio out for 
for creation purposes with no album or project planned? You just I guess like there's always like a fictional album plan, but also re- really you're just like recording to do it. So you do that whenever you feel like it. No, not like all the time. It depends on when your homeboy can like get you in the studio. <clears throat> so you've you've got mad just records ready to go if you want at any time, like recorded and mixed. Like and right now, I probably have like thirty five records. No one's heard. Are or they singles or like songs? And they're all recorded, mixed, ready, like done. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Not like mastered, but like okay, but almost there. You know, like rough ready, mixers, ready to go, basically. And you continue. Not like ready to go. I don't want anyone to hear them. Right, but in the sense that, like, if you did want to put something out, it would just take you a couple of days to polish up a record and then pop it out. I suppose. I, I'll say this, just witnessing that, like, I, f- I felt some sort of, like, aura around you. It, like, <laughs> like, straight a glow? Up. Like, like a light? Yeah, like, straight up. Like, it was crazy. The light of Heems? The light of Heems. It's fun to rap. Yeah, People man. think you're cool when you can rap well. But you've you've always... Even been cool. You're you've cool. always been cool, right? Like you've no, never no, no. not been cool. No, no, no. I'm not that cool. I'm alright. I mean, in general, you got a lot like, to work on. I mean, in general, like you know, there's this thing about the the people that don't seem like the cool guy is really the cool guy, and like I think <laughs> when you walk in a room, you're just a cool guy. Like you just you just light it up just mm-hmm. by your just 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 by walking in the room. Has as has that sort of made impact in things you do or places you go from a creative perspective? Like you walk in a room and people just fuck with you and have a conversation with you just because. Like you, you, you seem very inviting overall. You know how like the indigenous people think like if you take a photo of someone you steal their soul, or like you know how they see people think like this idea of like nazar lag jayegi matlab jaise agar like thoda zada acha lag rahe ho to fir log aapko dekhe like nazar lag jayegi aur fir you know it won't be good. Um, so then you like. Let me just translate. He's basically what Heems is saying is is that Desis have this sentiment that if someone says something good or positive about you or about your family, they're jinxing you. No, like if if you're looking too fly, if you're looking too fresh, if you're attracting too much energy to yourself. Mm. So then... Yeah, so then, you know, like you don't think about it like that and you don't want that. You don't want people to... You don't want to get in a room and light up the room. You want to just hang out in the corner and sit down. Is that talk you? To like, yeah, you want to just sit down and talk to like Sherrod and Juice and like. So, so how does that, so then how did that play out in in being in a packed arena like Webster Hall or in some of these places that you filled up because you're on the bill? You're like physically like higher than them by like three feet. <laughs> okay, I get that. So you can not think about it that much, like. At this at this stage in your career, how much touring and how many how much gigs do you still like like perform at? Oh, I don't play shows anymore. The other day, it was about a month or two ago. You you texted me a flyer the day of the event, and you're like, "Yo, I'm performing at Amityville or some shit." Yeah, and I had known about it already because my man was the opening act. I don't know if you remember this or were yeah, you? Paulie. Paulie, <laughs> you know Paulie? He's no, well he does because yeah. so Paulie's Paulie. buddies with my boy Long Island Mike. <laughs> oh, Mike, what? Mike the rapper, Mike McManus, Mike McManus, he's the producer. Okay, oh, I don't know that Mike. Small. I know Mike. I know one of his dudes, the, a rapper. I think Mike's in a band with Paulie. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Mikey and Paulie. point is, is Paulie sent me the flyer and he's like, "Yo, 
I know you know this guy. I'm opening up for him. So that was like two days prior. And then the day of, I'm in Mexico DJing something, and you texted me like, yo, come through. I'm in the hood. And it was this Amityville flyer. And I'm like, yeah, my man's opening up for you. And that was like, my last show. And and you told me, you're like, I don't I don't know why a fucking indie rock band is opening up for me. That's kind of, like, it kind of was suspect to you that some rock band was opening up for you and you're doing a rap show. Talk uh, to me about that. Yeah, I mean, I've had all types of people open for me. A rock band is actually okay. The reason the, that rock band was booked was because I wanted my boy Mike's rock band to, book, like to, to be booked. But I had assumed that they probably had other rappers and that we would have one rock, rock band on the bill. And then <laughs> um, I've had the worst is when you're like playing a show and there's like uh, the local promoter in like Buffalo or like, you know, <laughs> Reno, Nevada, like, like thinks like they're just Pizza Hut Taco Bell. So he books like a weird white comedy like band that's the equivalent of like Tom Green <laughs> or um so that's probably the worst so uninformed promoter or show organizer yes. puts it together yeah <laughs> so you that was your last show yeah and yeah. then what you just said I'm dropping the mic and that's it I'm not going to do no more nah, I told you I want to go back and work on the craft for a while Gotcha. So that's what you're going to kind of hone in on now while you have this corporate situation going on. I don't know what you're talking about. Fuck all the music shit for a minute because, like, we know about that. But, like, this this butter chicken podcast that we do realistically has nothing to do with food at all. So when we first put it out, people are like, yo, y'all are doing a restaurant? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> we're like, no, we're just we just love butter chicken. And that... That's our culture, and that's a very important part of our culture. And we eat it at Akbar. Speaking of which, you put a lot of videos of you at Akbar up, like randomly on oh, your probably on your gram. Often, yeah, like almost every week when I look at your story, I see you fucking are always at Akbar for some shit. I go to, that's, I that's go to a chicken. lot of family parties that like your company <laughs> is responsible for the entertainment at. <laughs> Yeah. What's up? What's up with that? Why is there so much shit at Akbar? Is that just? Cause... I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, that was always like where we had every Sweet Sixteen and like wedding Sangeet or something every... like this. Or... What, what What was the Akbar of the nineties? You remember? Well, Akbar. it was near Roosevelt. It was the, Akbar. It was the Akbar. Mall. No, no. Well, I, I'm saying oh, I'm oh, like from oh. where we're we're from Bombay, Bombay, whatever. That Not is even, from. bro. Yeah, the restaurant where, where, northern. I, where we're no, from, Santur, Santur, oh, bro. Yeah, I mean, we never really fuck with Santur. Yeah, that, bro, that, there were we so to, many parties. That was low class. We went that to Akbar from like I live like yeah. two blocks. I don't know. Santur. My family went to Santur, bro. Fuck that. We went to Santur. I have to agree with him. I mean, like we didn't Bombay Palace, but you were in Long Island at that time. No, this Bombay Palace is interesting. Wait, no, Bombay. Harbor, you no, know. no, Palace. not Bombay Harbor. Do you Bombay remember Har Bombay Harbor? Yes, on Hillside. Was it near water? On Hillside. No, it was. Uh, I think it was on Hillside. Damn it! Bombay like, oh, my... Bombay Harbor. You're talking Port Washington. Was it? Yeah, that was Devon. That was Devon. Bombay yes. Harbor. That was Devon. absolutely. Was it near water? Yes, it was. It might, yeah. even be, it might be Devon. It might Port be Washington. the building of Devon. That's right. It well, might be the well, building. Well, then of that Devon. like probably. Yo, we're talking for, about as far as nostalgia and Indian restaurants in like Queens and Long Island goes. The idea of like Bombay Harbor. Is probably like I only remember it from when I was really young. It must have been like early nineties, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And then it became Devon. Devon, that's right. Mm -hmm. But I remember uh, parties there, and that's kind of crazy because I like places near the water, and you don't get into Indian restaurants near the water in Long Island. Like, no, my favorite though was on Queens Bully at that point. Thundur, Thundur. upstairs, Thundur. yeah, upstairs parties at Thundur. Word. Thundur, 
Yeah. And their tandoori chicken was bad. And it was straight on Queens Boulevard. It Red Lobster. Like for me, like uh, from Belrose, it felt like a little bit like more herb. It was like real a big herb. city, real Queens. New York. Real it was Queens. like the Manhattan <laughs> yeah. of Queens. Manhattan <laughs> 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 Queens. Well, I was like five when Tandoor was going on. That was like, popping. I used, yeah. We used to have club parties I had there. like Paisley vests with like Meru collar shirts with Chinese designs on them and like mushroom cuts. <laughs> Uh, like at Tandoor in 1990. So you've been doing this food circuit for a minute because we're talking OG restaurants. Segway. OG yeah. restaurants. Do you remember the food at any of these places? Yeah. Or do you just remember it being the same or different or banging or one place was better I than I remember the other? once at Tandoor, there was goat <laughs> meat, and I was like, I don't want to eat goat. And now, like, I don't cook beef and... I get bored, and so I cook goat, like, the last, like, year and a half, and I never ate goat, and I specifically remember being, like, five or six at Thundur and not eating goat meat, but, um, yeah, I remember eating Indian food at all these places, and, like, my parents wouldn't cook a lot of meat at home, so these restaurants were actually where I would first have things like butter chicken, mm. you know, and... um, to To this day, like, you could just get out of whatever you're doing, and if you go and eat some like would you just go and just say i want to go to a restaurant grab some butter chicken and some naan or some butter chicken and rice do you do you do that like me and juicy the guys you have a craving for that ever if anything i would just like cook it myself like once a week or something like that but i think at this point now i don't go out and like buy it how how long you been cooking for probably like mm, three to four years what's your favorite dish you cook I mean, the butter chicken I make is pretty good. No, what's gotta up, try that, yo. We definitely got to try that. You make it. At, I did um, this. Uh, I went food shopping with Sean Evans. from, okay. And uh, we cooked butter chicken at my house. Uh, in, in your mom's crib? Yeah. What? When, when can we come do that? Anytime. I mean, you've been to the crib. Just yeah. You just pull up and play me music outside the crib. I pull, up, I pull up to his crib, and he's like, yo, I'm going to come outside, B. No, no, no. Well, you always pull up at like 11.30 p.m. No word. <laughs> word. 11.37 p.m. Like, Yeah. Do you put methi in your butter chicken? No. Really? Yeah. Do you juice? I do. Heavy, right? Kasuri methi. Kasuri methi? Yeah. No. That's, that's my mom's recipe, so. So, so besides like the I butter... I make some weird shit, though. What, 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 do you, what do you do with your butter chicken? Like, you know, instead of like heavy cream, I might put like a very light... A couple goo-ops or a couple dollops, as they say, of, like, Alfredo, you know, wow. like, instead of heavy cream because wow. it's sweet. It gets that sweetness. Then I'll throw, like, I'm really into, you know, I'll throw a lot of, like, red pepper in there and make it spicy and sweet so it's, like, sweet and spicy. I throw sriracha in there and, the fuck? yeah, I marinate, like, the regular shit with the yogurt. I let it marinate for, like, three to six hours, and then I throw it in with the... Tarka with the so with you cook tomatoes. your chicken first. You you then do oh, marinate it in okay. yogurt and spices. Okay, you don't grill it first though. No, I let it simmer in there for like as long as I can. In the sauce, you you cook yours first. So that's how you're supposed to do it. I think right. Couple so methods. many different ways. There's no right way anymore. Clearly. Tandoor is is the is, clearly is the original way. Yeah. Right. Second, so the substitute for that would be grilling it on a barbecue grill. Okay. Or just baking it in the oven. Or just sautéing it in a pan and then dumping and, it into the and, sauce. And then putting it into the sauce? Yeah, so you marry them after. I'm going to ask you a fact, fun fact. Do you know what when butter chicken was created and where it was created? 
No, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it would be nice to know, right? Because we love it so much. Well, I mean, there's like a deep history of like chicken tikka masala being like a product of like the British colonialism in India. Right, and, like, right, The right. Brits kind of Correct. incorporating their like tomato heavy sauces into like local spices, but it mm-hmm. being bland. But I always think of like makhani or chicken, butter chicken is like the Indian equivalent, which maybe just means it's like um, a lot more butter and like more unhealthy. I feel like but what, chicken tikka masala and butter chicken, same shit. You always them. see them on every Indian menu, and they're the same fucking they're shit. The same they're thing, not the right? same yeah. shit because you got the onion and peppers in the in the in the yeah, but tikka in masala. the what? Or, or and the, the chicken tikka masala from where, which restaurant? Onions and peppers in there. Which, which absolutely restaurant? that's meat. Yeah. No, if it's chicken tikka masala. There's supposed to be onions and peppers. I, I interpret. I've never had no chicken tikka masala with no <laughs> nah, onions either, and peppers. Me either. Never okay, no that's the difference. No, that's I like think you're talking about some chicken korma or some other. Whole no, 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 no. It's butter chicken with no. I the, think f- it's butter chicken with the tomato with the um, onions and the green peppers in it. I think, it's, and I hate that. Shit. It's chicken uh, cooked in the tandoor versus like pan fried. Maybe yeah, so right. chicken makhani is what I do. Exactly. And then chicken tikka masala is make chicken tikka in a tandoor and then and throw put it in exactly. masala. Exactly. Okay, yeah. maybe. Maybe. I mean, I'm not going to call Cause it. Because I, don't, I, don't, I never got onions and green peppers. I think we're all wrong, actually, collectively. Well, Ju- <laughs> Juicy knows where chicken tikka masala or chicken makhani was invented. It was invented... Uh, he, he told me once and I... By um, a restaurant in New Delhi called Moti Mahal. Yes, they take credit for it. And they take credit for fact. it. And it, you're right. It was from British colonialism... Um, it, it was like two parts. It was that was one part of it, and then they were trying to, I guess, maybe tuck that under the so rug. White people took Indian food, and then Indian people took the white food <laughs> that Indian people made, made it more unhealthy, and then made it their own. Exactly. All right, yeah, that's it. Sounds right. There's this word going around, like like people are talking about cultural appropriation a lot these days. <laughs> yeah, for like the last like seven. Yeah, right. But with this with this Pharrell project we just did for the holy Adidas thing. Yeah. They've been talking about that, like how they feel that Adidas and Pharrell uh, sort of just jumped into this holy inspired line and it was completely inappropriate and they've just taken advantage of of the culture. Did you hear about any of this? I didn't hear anything about it, but I'm not surprised at all. I think when me and Juice were there, we were talking about like the setup, the idea of like Ganesh being there and knowing how like the right wing Hindu nationalists are. I think anything you do that involves a god below your kneecap (laughs) is, like, grounds for right-wing Hindu nationalists to, like, like make a big hullabaloo out of nothing. Mm -hmm. Here, I said hullabaloo. (laughs) Being the, the, the musical person you are, the creative person, the person into cultures all around. Sure. What are your thoughts? I know you, you said you came to the event and that you felt was dope, but what what are your thoughts on the fact that this legendary producer in Pharrell teams up with a big brand? Yeah, it's great. Does this I mean, inspire thing? Like your moment, opinion like, is super valued to us and I think to all of our listeners, right? Like like what Heem says, you know, we don't take lightly. We we believe in what you say. I think it's great any time like any body of influence or anybody in a position of power or whether that's extended to like um, brands like pay attention to our community and you know any thing since we've been in this country to kind of uh, give some attention to us is great but you know besides visibility I think about I think it's about these opportunities of like allyship with artists like Pharrell and other people of color and you know how the more visibility we get the more we also use it to like shine a light on that allyship and like those bonds between like our collective communities um but 
Yeah, you know. Uh, so, I like yeah. that perspective. Yeah, 100%, man. Speaking of allyship, bro, um, you know, you came to see us that day. And, and prior to that, when I came to see you at your crib, I had told you that I was I was listening to certain music and just working on mixtapes again and back in the studio. And, and I had mentioned an artist by the name of Ani Khan to you. And oh, yeah. you, you had told me that that was the little homie and that you guys talk and, like, you've kind of helped sort of just... just Conversate with that's them. Just, that's the homie, yeah. Right. So, what, what have you heard his project and his music, and and what are your thoughts on? Like, he's the new, a new, f- like, right? He's in his twenties. He's younger than us, and now we see him. I saw Heems come up, and I saw the impact you made, and that you continue to make. And now I see this other kid from New York, from Queens, not Indian, but from the South Asian community. And I'm, I wonder what your thoughts are when you see that that he's a, a whole decade under us. Uh. Yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of his music, first and foremost, and, like, him being South Asian as well, and, like, being a part of the community, being from Queens, like, in a lot of ways, at that point, I, you know, had been making music for a while, and I was just like, this dude is amazing, he's making music that, like, I feel like a lot of people would like, and it should be, like, both critically, like, praised and praised by, like, the masses, and it's, I, I told him, like, yo, you're swinging for the fences with this, like, this is great music that will have a lot like of a bigger impact than a lot of the shit I've been doing for a while. And in a lot of ways, it kind of made me feel like I could go on to somewhere where I would have the platform to push artists that were younger and fresher and smarter and better than me and that were making dope music that still, you know, uh, was about the goal of putting like South Asian artists forward in Western pop culture and Western music. And Anik was the, the first dude where I was like, oh, shit, this, you know, like, this dude should do it. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to chill out, figure out a new plan and, like, see how I can help other artists like him and or how I can work with and how I could use a different platform to help artists like him. Amen to that, bro. Um, he's one. And now me being back in the mixtapes and just be diving into the youth culture and ha- kind of having the similar sentiment... I think juicy as well with that sentiment of this mm-hmm. this young generation that we can open up all these doors for or, or just co-sign or help or do whatever we can for. Um, do you feel that he's a one-off or do you feel that there's a whole army or a whole community of people that are similar in the sense of... Yeah, there's a community. I don't think there's like an army and I don't think he's a one-off. <laughs> I think those are both extremes, but I think there's a community and I think... Um, you know, it's a time where more of us should be vocal, and so I think there's a lot more artists coming out, and there should be, and I think a lot of them have more access to come out in a bigger way, and I'm excited about that opportunity for a lot of artists that deserve that spotlight. You think it's easier now for these guys coming out versus, say, when you were doing it, or even guys in my era? It's never easy it? for any artist coming out, um, and it's never easy for any like um, artists that are people of color to come out. I'm saying easier than what where in the time that we came out. Not easy, just easier. It's the same shit all the time. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta be great. Yeah, put out a good product. Good things are bound to happen. Yeah, it's the same shit all the time. You gotta be good. Yeah. Do you feel that tools now are different and you gotta use them differently, or you know now there's all streaming versus you said your your first one of your first big breaks was a mixtape and with an apparel brand. Like, who's doing that now? 
Uh, I think people don't need uh, need to do shit like that now. Like they can just record and put it out. Right. Bet. I believe in that too. But I do believe in embracing technology and utilizing every platform to its infinite potential. Word. Word up. For sure, man. For real. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, Heems. I think we're we're about to wrap up, man. But yes, sir. I, I definitely, That's what's up. I definitely. Uh, Again, thank you for coming through. Thank you for sh- dropping knowledge on us, sharing gems with us, and just being the person you are, man, and continue to push yourself forward and push the culture forward in every aspect. It's good to see you guys it's again. It's good to see you, man. Thank you so much, man. No, this it. is great. Thank um, you. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to yet another episode of the Butter Chicken Podcast with DJ Sherrod and DJ Juicy. A very special thank you to Himanchu, a.k.a. Heems, for joining us today. Thank you so much for the stories and the conversation. Uh, make sure to check us at the Butter Chicken Podcast on Instagram, my personal social at DJ Juicy. And at DJ Sharad, spelled S-H-A-R-A-D. Oh, my bad. Go ahead. DJ Sharad. Word. That's me. Don't Teams. look at me, like, on the internet or on the street or, like, in person. <laughs> you don't need to know my social. <laughs> Chill the fuck out. <laughs> Why are you so thirsty? Like, hang out, like, hang out relax. Don't worry about me. My man. Thank you so much, much. Appreciate you, brother. We are the Butter Chicken Podcast, baby. We see you soon. We see you next week. Thank you for tuning in. Sometimes I got games. Sometimes I'm mad shy. Sometimes I'm mad lame. Sometimes I'm mad fly. Sometimes I'm so fly in the bay. I'm hella fly. Sometimes I'll get fried and it'll be televised. Damn, cuz everybody love you when you jam bus. Put you on the phone. They be like, let's jam, bro. Yeah, you want a black tea? Don't be no man, bro. Get your beats.